Your film is now ready to be shown. Good morning. I'm Justin Hendricks, editor of Tech Policy Press, a nonprofit media and community venture intended to provoke new ideas, debate, and discussion at the intersection of technology and democracy. Today's episode features two discussions. First, I talk with Thusian Nandakumar, an editor at the Tamil Guardian, and Amarnath Amarasingham, a professor and extremism researcher at Queen's University in Canada, who will tell the story of how social media platforms such as Facebook and Instagram are censoring Tamil activists and other activists around the world who are being targeted by governments. And second, we focus on kids and social media, with reactions to a hearing in a Senate subcommittee titled Protecting Kids Online, Internet Privacy and Manipulative Marketing. We hear from tech policy experts Sarah Collins, who is policy counsel at Public Knowledge, and Joe Jerome, a policy expert at Common Sense Media. Let's get started. Uh, my name is uh, Amarnath Amarasingh. I'm, I'm an assistant professor at Queen's University in Ontario, Canada. My name is Dushyan Nandakumar. I'm one of the editors of the Tamil Guardian, and I'm a medical doctor working in London. Tell me what you are seeing at the Tamil Guardian. So what we're actually seeing is a lot of essentially censorship. Uh, taking place on the social media platform on both Facebook and on Instagram. So we're seeing the platforms removing a lot of content. Sometimes it's content that's linked to Tamil militancy or reporting or commenting on the Tamil militancy, uh, which, as you probably know, uh, the Tamil arms struggle and all militant groups uh, were basically defeated uh, 12 years ago. And we're seeing a lot of removal of any kind of Tamil nationalist material from these platforms now. So it's really kind of stifled a lot of the space that's available to have these conversations and discussions, but it's also impacted on our reporting and what we're being able to allow essentially to post on social media without the censorship. And it's something that we haven't really encountered in other spaces such as Twitter. So our Twitter account has been quite free to, to report and post on what it is, but really we're seeing a lot of stuff on Facebook and on Instagram be removed. And sadly, very little recourse to kind of challenge some of these decisions. Uh, and we're seeing it's really beginning to stifle our reporting and also stifle some of the discussions that can take place around Tamil nationalism. Have you been in touch with Facebook, specifically with Instagram? Are you able to talk to a human there? Or is most of your conversation with them through an automated system? A lot of it is automated. So a lot of it, as you know, it's kind of Facebook and Instagram's reporting tool, um, reporting and, and submitting cases to the oversight board, um, which either go unanswered or come back with quite generic responses as to why this material was removed. Quite commonly, we're seeing material be removed uh, on the basis that it's kind of extreme um, violent or dangerous organizations uh, or material that can be seen to support or promote that. Um, even though we as the newspaper, as the Tamil Guardian, which has been publishing for you know more than 20 years now, we've never been accused of ever breaking any of those laws within the UK, which is where we're working, uh, where we're based out of. We've been reporting extensively on these issues, like I said, for years and years and years. And other platforms also have not had this issue. Uh, we've tried to raise it with, with humans also at Facebook and at Instagram, but unfortunately, it, things haven't gotten better. And if anything, we're actually seeing a slight uptick and an increase in the amount of material that's being removed, but also the scope of, of material that's being removed. So now we're seeing the removal of 
posts that won't even reference Tamil militancy, for instance, or any particular Tamil organizations, but just simply something that will uh, speak about Tamil nationalism, that will speak about uh, genocide, for instance, or that will even speak about just uh, human rights abuses that have been committed by the Sri Lankan states. So it's really broadened in both its scope and also with the frequency with which posts are being deleted. Amar, you you connect this to what's happening in other parts of the world as well. You call out India, you call out Palestine. Um, are there other other places in the world where you're seeing this phenomenon happen? Yeah, I mean, so I mean, this is kind of an old phenomenon. I mean, the first uh, the first many of us got a whiff of it was when YouTube took down a whole host of what functioned as actual, you know, legal evidence against the Syrian government of chemical attacks, of uh, indiscriminate killings and bombings that were happening. I want to say 2014, and uh, YouTube just kind of deleted dozens and dozens of videos that uh, people were collecting, activists on the ground were collecting of actual state crimes. And and so they were called out back then for that. Um, and then different platforms have been called out at different times. You know, the Uyghur content has been taken down, um, Kashmir over the last little while, um, the farmers protests in India. Um, and, and a lot of it seems to be due to certain kinds of branding that these platforms are are using for kind of automated, you know, artificial intelligence, right? A kind of over-dependence on artificial intelligence. So if you, you know, the LTT flag uh, can be thrown into the system, the face of Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi can be thrown into the system. And so when you try to upload something that may contain uh, something that's in the system, it, it either prevents you from uploading it or is taken down quite immediately after. The second thing I think is causing some of this is actual state-run or state-adjacent uh, digital activists who are basically employed by the state to do mass reporting, right? And so we've seen some of that happen on Facebook, in particular with the Sri Lankan case, uh, with people who work uh, closely with the Sri Lankan government. We've seen it with the farmers' protests, with people who work closely with um, the kind of these troll farms that exist in India and, and, and Russia and China. If you can kind of mass report pieces of content, particularly critical content of your regime, those tend to get kind of taken down very quickly because it's coming from a kind of reputable place, I guess, right? So it's a, a kind of from the state. Um, and so I think, I think the, the long-term struggle now is how does Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, um, WhatsApp, all of this, all of these companies, how do they actually deal with social movements in general and, and um, legitimate criticism of the state? Because at the end of the day, there are for-profit companies who have to work within, work with governments and work in states. Um, but at the same time, some of these countries that they want to work in are also human rights violators and, and authoritarian regimes. And so the, the, you can't just simply listen to state-run media or, or, or state apparatus based on, you know, in, in terms of who is a threat and who should be taken down. And so that, that's, I think, an ongoing challenge. There's been a huge push in the West and in the U.S. in particular to do more about disinformation, to introduce maybe more stringent content moderation on the platform to deal with, you know, our own uh, extremists here, which, of course, I'm talking to you on the day that the U.S. Congress is voting on whether to form a commission to look into January 6th and the violence that happened on that day. Do you think this is in, in part, perhaps partly overcorrection by the platforms? No, absolutely. I mean, I think that this entire conversation largely started in 2014 with the rise of uh, the rise of ISIS and how to and and the kind of 
um, saturation, many of uh, much of ISIS content, beheading videos, executions had on you know mainstream platforms, and uh, there was a real push from government, from academics, from think tank folks to kind of get the platforms to do something, right? Because there there was open executions happening on Twitter, and and um, that wasn't um, a great idea. I think part of how they're doing it with in terms of the branding, in terms of use of artificial intelligence and their hashing network, etc., um, is is a result of going after ISIS. And Al Qaeda videos, it's just now it's it's kind of applying to anyone and anything that's listed as a terrorist entity or 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 kind of signaled by the state as some sort of state that this is a threat that needs to be taken care of. There is a kind of overreach happening that they need to be careful of because in in essence, as as Tushi mentioned, um, it's basically uh, silencing a lot of legitimate social movements and legitimate critique of of authoritarian regimes, which is going to be a problem. I think I'd, I'd want to add to that and say that Facebook himself got into a bit of controversy a few years ago in Sri Lanka when singular Buddhist nationalists, you know, lies or fake news, whatever you want to call it, was partly blamed for uh, a set of very deadly anti-Muslim riots. You know, there was fake news being spread about Muslims in Sri Lanka putting was it anti-fertility pills in food or some kind some kind of you know fake news and rumors that really spread and played a role in sparking some very real anti-muslim riots which led to violence and ultimately loss of life and i think facebook got a lot of stick for it at the time and they kind of said they would redouble their efforts to clamp down on on hate speech and extremist material in sri lanka but i think what we noticed though was not only was there an overcorrection. Um, but it was an, a biased approach and not, not necessarily a nuanced approach as well. So whilst a lot of singular extremist material may be taken down now, what we've got is singular language um, moderators are on there or maybe people in Sri Lanka who don't fully have the experience or knowledge or the understanding of Tamil nationalist politics, for instance. And it, that really that nuance is all kind of lost. And it's become very heavy when it comes to taking down Tamil nationalist content or Tamil political content, but not necessarily having that same nuance and understanding when it comes to singular language content as well. So it's a little bit unclear in which direction they've gone to. But this is definitely something that Facebook was getting stick for in Sri Lanka a few years ago. Can you give us an anecdote about a specific piece of content, its removal, and how that might have affected the political debate? Yeah, I mean, I think there's there's two big kind of commemorative anniversaries in the Tamil nationalist calendar. One is November 27th, which is known as Mahvirarnal, or Heroes Day, uh, which commemorates all militants who uh, fought and were killed uh, in the in the armed conflict. And the other is May 18th, just gone, which is now known as Tamil Genocide Day, and it marks the end of the conflict and and that's really the final day uh, of fighting 12 years ago and that's when you know tens of thousands of tamil civilians were, were massacred what we're seeing though is any reference to november 27th which even talks about militants um tamil militants from any different organization specifically with the tamil tigers or the ltt is getting entirely removed so we cannot talk about um the political leaders within the movement, for instance, uh, or highlighting their names, even these are these are leaders who've had obituaries in The Guardian or in The Times and speaking about them and the legacy that they've left behind, whether it's, you know, 
positive or negative, and even having that discussion and debating it is completely removed. On the more kind of audacious side of things, I think we've seen artwork that's spoken about genocides be removed from different platforms. We've seen uh, Tamil nationalist symbols, whether it's um, kind of a flower or photographs of, of, of a man holding a photo of his you know, dead son or daughter who was a fighter uh, within the uh, armed uh, movements being removed entirely. So it's almost kind of led to an erasure of discussing this particular aspect of the conflict, which was very real and, you know, which definitely needs to be talked about and discussed. I think in a more insidious longer term effect, it's definitely impacts on what we post in general. So to a degree, there's a degree of kind of self-censorship now because we refrain from posting things that may be removed because our, the accounts had several warnings. And I know this is, um, you know, a, a similar kind of problem faced by by other accounts as well. So by not even wanting to speak about that area of the conflict, which is obviously a massive, massive part of it, it's really shut down a lot of conversations and led to people talking about erasure uh, uh, of, the, of Tamil politics in general. So for Americans, this would be akin to all references to January 6th being removed, for instance. Um, possibly, yeah. I mean, it, it's but it's not even referencing a kind of one particular incident. It, it, it's almost uh, an, an entire side, if that makes sense. So any discussion about one particular organization, which was the leading Tamil militant organization, for instance, is almost entirely taken off, um, especially if it's discussing kind of the nuances of it, if that makes sense. So um, I know, you know, it's like Kurds have been finding something similar, as Amara said, the farmers protests and also in Syria. So it's almost erasing one side of a conflict rather than even a date or a particular instance. If you could talk to, let's say, Guy Rosen, who runs Integrity at Facebook right now, what would you say to him? Wow, <laughs> it would be a long conversation for sure. I think, I mean, there are so many different things to discuss, but I think the very first thing is, um, I think I think I'd be talking about just actually getting people on the oversight board and in other spaces in 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 these social media platforms who understand the contexts in these different parts of the world. So whether it's in Sri Lanka or in India, and understand and give, can give views from different opposing sides as well. Because I think the problem is when you take one particular view, especially a view that's held by the state or you're influenced heavily by a state-led narrative, I think you can be almost blind. You've almost got the shutters on and you can't see what else is happening outside of that narrative. And it's very quick and easy to to clamp down and and to be really broad and, and overreach. So I think the first thing is to have more conversations and to invite more more people into the circle um, and actually try and get a deeper understanding of it. I think the other thing is just even looking at some of the laws. So in the UK, for instance, yesterday was May 18th, there were lots of Tamalulam flags, uh, which is seen as the the national flag of the aspirational state that the Tamils wanted, which were publicly on display, police officers walking past, it's seen as a kind of national symbol. But Facebook and Instagram will ban that symbol saying it's illegal and associated with a group that's designated as a terrorist organization. Whereas I don't think there's ever been a prosecution in the world to do with that flag, apart from in Sri Lanka, obviously, uh, where the organization and any Tamil nationalist symbols are almost entirely banned. So maybe having a look at some of the legalities in particular uh, areas and contexts would be better. But in general, I think it just needs to have a broader and more nuanced understanding of some of these different struggles and different contexts around the world. Have you brought this to the oversight board? Have you submitted a case? We have. We've submitted a few, and I know we're not the only ones to have done so. 
but unfortunately there's been literally nothing to, to come off it. We've, we've, we've tried engaging with, with Facebook through other channels as well. Um, and unfortunately all efforts have kind of either fallen on deaf ears or, or have been rebuffed. It's just, the conversation hasn't really gotten anywhere. And in the end, all that's happened is it's almost self-censorship essentially. Unfortunately, the conversation hasn't been productive and we've been reaching out and still trying to reach out through various different ways through the oversight board as well. But things just are not moving forward, sadly. If I can just add, um, I, I mean, I think, I mean, it, you know, one of the conversations I think these platforms need to have is how some of these reporting tools um, are being abused, right? Are, are being abused systematically by state actors. I, I know that they're aware of it because I've talked to some of the people in some of these platforms about it, but I, I don't know that they've actually done anything to fix it. Because if you say that if I can create a bot, for example, to mass report anyone I disagree with, that is not necessarily how these reporting functions are supposed to work. Um, and so particularly if you're a state and you, and you um, have already silenced your critics domestically, and now you're dealing with, you're dealing with kind of transnational online criticism um, from the Arab Spring onwards, this is going to be an ongoing trend with social movements tr transnationally finding uh, activists in the online space, um, if, if there's a way to silence that just through um, steer, sheer uh, state power in terms of mass reporting and, and, and so on, and the platform's response is to either throw the terrorism card out there or dangerous organizations card out there, that's not necessarily uh, healthy to kind of proper discourse, you know, the, the kind of health of the activist space um, that, that, that we're all a part of. And so I mean, the, the the most recent one is a good example with with what's happening in Palestine and Sheikh Jarrah. Is a lot of a lot of the hashtags that were associated with Palestinian activism were almost just blanket banned in silence based based on mass reporting. And so the way in which activists kept in touch with each other, spoke to each other, spoke about a common topic, um, that process in itself was stalled and 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 silenced at a time when um, it's it's most needed and most needs to be amplified. And so that that's kind of the concern I have going forward. Is is I I don't see most of these platforms will always kind of are always reactive to complaints and media attention. Um, they, they don't take a proactive approach to things necessarily. And and so and I don't get the impression that they're, you know, that invested in actually fixing some of this, these pro problems proactively. So um, it's going to be an ongoing problem in the activist space, I think, um, just at the time when that shouldn't be the case. I assume one of the answers is they need a lot more humans. I mean, these are billion dollar companies um, and, and they have thousands of people looking at this at pieces of content from child pornography to organized crime to, you know, everything in between to spam accounts and so on. And, and terrorism, extremism, this kind of stuff is just just kind of a small percentage of the kind of heinous content that some of these people look at. Um, but as Tissi was mentioning, it, 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 the, the, because it's political, the nuances are often lost, right? And we saw this uh, as early as 2014, when as soon as there was this kind of public pushback against ISIS content on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram, they took it down very quickly, but they only took down the English language content, right? So if you if you looked up uh, ISIS content on in Arabic or Indonesian or whatever other language, it was right there in front of you. And so it, it, it's always this kind of reactionary approach. Oh, oh, we're getting yelled at for English language content on Twitter. Okay, we'll find a way to remove that. And 
A year later, oh, we're getting yelled at for Arabic language content on Twitter. Okay, we'll get rid of that. Um, so there's no like thinking ahead about how how some of this stuff is going to play out. There was a kind of shift uh, along those lines. Um, I know that there was a lot of internal debate, for example, around what to do with pro-Trump content. You know, build the wall, alt-right, uh, MAGA content because it you know it is right on the fence of what's allowed within democratic discourse and what's hate speech and 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 what should be taken down and that's an that's a really difficult line to draw for any of us including these platforms um because we don't because these platforms function basically as a public sphere uh, they're not just private companies this is how all of us get our news this is how all of us engage in activism engage in political conversation we don't necessarily want them blanket banning anything that makes us uncomfortable right um and i'll i'll say that for anti refugee content as well like i don't want all conversation about of that taken down just because it makes me uncomfortable uh i i do think these platforms have a responsibility to kind of provide the space for that conversation uh within bounds but i think now we're seeing the opposite which is as long as it's reported by the state or as long as it's reported by um mass reported it's just disappearing yeah i think i would add you know when these companies say they're getting yelled at or getting in trouble like you were saying amara it's it 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 also depends by who right you've got some of the most repressive regimes around the world who uh, are mass reporting or have units specially dedicated to this kind of stuff um i mean the sri lankan military has particular kind of it and tech units we know there's been a lot of uh, talk and hubbub about um this new kind of pegasus software that they've got which which is installing bugs on people's phones um a senior military official claimed that the sri lankan military can actually see whatsapp messages recently a couple of weeks ago it, despite the encryption so it, it there's a lot of um i think these big tech companies have to ask themselves like what actions are they taking and who are they benefiting and who i know like you said they're big for profit companies um but sri lanka for instance is ranked consistently down the bottom of the global kind of press freedom in- index by reports about borders we know journalists and media workers get killed it's long been dubbed one of the most dangerous places in the world to be a d- journalist so when these big tech companies are almost siding with the state with clamping down any dissent or any criticism of the state you really got to ask yourself kind of what what's happening it's not just being kind of reactive to some of these things but is that actually actually almost actively siding with some of these repressive regimes and i think that's a really problematic position for for uh, these big tech companies to be in german that's a good place to stop i thank you very much thank you thank you On May 18th, US Senator Richard Blumenthal, the chair of the Subcommittee on Consumer Protection, Product Safety and Data Security, convened a hearing titled Protecting Kids Online: Internet Privacy and Manipulative Marketing. Here are some voices from that discussion. As children spend drastically more time online, the tech platforms really have become a perilous minefield for many of them they're deeply addictive and potentially destructive without sufficient parental supervision or safeguards the finding was that more than a quarter of children 9 to 11 years old receive sexual solicitations on social media often by adults a quarter of those children receive sexual solicitations These children are also assailed by aggressive, sophisticated, undisclosed marketing. 
that prey on their impressionable minds and exploit those dossiers of private information for commercial gain. Children are constantly being tracked and analyzed. Take TikTok, for example. They have been accused of using algorithms to keep kids scrolling indefinitely. Alphabet, Google, and YouTube's parent company has been accused of tracking children when they aren't using their school devices and using features such as autoplay to keep kids glued to their devices. But this doesn't end with tracking and scrolling. Companies like Snapchat have exposed children to predators and explicit adult content while using their products. With millions of teen users, disappearing messages, and a map of all of your contacts, this has become a child predator's dream. We do not accept this manipulation of children anywhere else. We must not accept it online. And the reason that parents, teachers, and children feel overwhelmed that this is, is because this is not a problem that parents, teachers, or kids can solve on their own. A system designed to extract every ounce of a child's attention, expose them to an infinite public, and encourages them to get lost in the mirror of anxiety is simply not healthy. The tech sector has the ability to raise the ceiling and give children back their childhood, but it is up to lawmakers to insist on the floor of behavior below which they must not go. Um, the, the concern there, I, I think, is even if the Instagram kids is, you know, benign and isn't collecting all of the data from kids, it's another type of grooming behavior, right? It's, it's locking them into the platform so that when they turn 13, all their friends are on Instagram. Now they're locked in and need to continue using it. And now it does start collecting all of their data. And then they, you know, they're stuck making a choice. Do they abandon those social connections um, or, you know, give up privacy? It's not possible, even with all the resources in the world, for the FTC to go after all, every individual developer and every different programmer that's uploading videos to YouTube. And so, therefore, I think the platforms need to be held accountable. You just heard, in order, Senator Richard Blumenthal of Connecticut, Senator Marsha Blackburn of Tennessee, Baroness Beban Kidron, founder and chair of the UK organization Five Rights, Sarah Jekyllman, Research Director for Usable Security and Privacy at the International Computer Science Institute at the University of California at Berkeley, and Angela Campbell, a Professor Emeritus at Georgetown Law. For reactions to the hearing, I spoke with Sarah Collins, Policy Counsel at Public Knowledge and previously a Policy Counsel on the Future of Privacy Forum's Education and Youth Privacy Team, as well as Joseph Jerome, Director of Platform Accountability and State Advocacy at Common Sense Media, where he focuses on legislative and policy solutions related to children and digital media. My name is Sarah Collins. I am a policy counsel at Public Knowledge. Uh, I'm Joseph Jerome. I serve as Director of State Advocacy and Platform Accountability at Common Sense. And I perhaps should not have been surprised to find the two of you paying very close attention uh, to this hearing yesterday. Um, tell us a little bit about what happened, Sarah. Uh, yeah, so the hearing yesterday was at the Senate Commerce Subcommittee of Consumer Protection, and it was all about the kids. Kids' privacy, kids' safety, kid tech, 
we were doing it all. And no one was getting grilled, although there were lots of call-outs of TikTok for not showing up. They still have not had their time in the congressional hot seat yet. But it was, uh, again, academics and other advocates who do a ton of research and work in a, the intersection of, of kids and technology. Give me a couple of the, the top line things that you heard yesterday that you thought were interesting, and uh, in particular, what you heard from lawmakers in terms of the direction they were taking things. Well, I think the direction was kind of all over the place. And that's one of the things that's so tricky about when you're talking about the kids space, because and Joe put this really well on Twitter. So this is all him. But there are impulses around protecting kids data. There are impulses uh, around making tech safer, like in a safety sense. And then there's also impulses around giving parents more control. And those impulses don't always align. Like those don't lend themselves to the same policy solutions. Look, it's, I don't think it's any secret at this point that there is a bipartisan interest in kids and tech. I think if you've been paying attention to any of these tech hearings over the past you know, six months, this has come up in the House and the Senate. But it, it really is, in some respects, a little bit unfocused. Um, sometimes it's focusing on you know, this larger Section 230 debate. And is that impacting kids? Um, it gets into this, I think, a really sort of corrosive narrative around tech being addictive for kids. Um, and, and this hearing, you know, this hearing was supposed to be about privacy. And I think all the witnesses came ready to discuss challenges that they've had with, you know, trying to monitor the app ecosystem, trying to understand, you know, whether and how, to what extent companies are complying with um, COPPA, the Children's Online Privacy Protection Act. They were still being put on the spot by lawmakers that were asking a whole lot of questions that really weren't focused on COPPA and what COPPA addresses. And in one hand, I think that's that's good. Um, COPPA isn't the solution to everything. But on the other hand, you know, it, it's a privacy and marketing law, and there are a lot of other tech issues out there. I, I think sometimes the, the lawmakers have a really big appetite for trying to protect kids from tech, but what they want to protect kids from and how they want to do that legislatively is is an open question. There were some specifics put forward about about the challenges around privacy. Um, we d- we did get to hear a little bit of the concern around something like what fifty percent of apps in the children's space, you know, seemingly you know evading privacy protections for children. Sarah, you should correct me if I'm wrong. So the real challenge that we have, and this this came up a lot. There, were, I think all the witnesses sort of hit on. The, the fact that COPPA has this actual knowledge standard, which requires companies to basically, it, the way it's been interpreted, to they basically need to know with 100% of efficacy whether a user is a child. And of course, when you're dealing with a random user online, you're never going to necessarily know 100% if it's a kid. This standard makes it really hard to hold companies accountable when they're swooping up a lot of data that's probably from kids, but they don't actually know is from kids. The, you know, the other big issue that I think a lot of the folks, uh, you know, Surge has done a lot of work at App Census evaluating third-party da- data practices in the, it's a complicated app ecosystem. I don't think either Sarah and I can adequately describe it to you, but we don't know what we don't know. Instead, we just know that there are a lot of like software development kits, third-party trackers that are potentially scraping a whole lot of data, using it for ad targeting, it, using it for profiling. But we can't actually confirm that. And there's a, I think there's just a, a lot of 
uncertainty as to who should be responsible for cleaning up this ecosystem. Should it be the Federal Trade Commission with more authority? Should it be, frankly, like the app stores, um, you know, Google and Apple to sort of actually police these apps a little bit better? Or is there, you know, is there a role for self-regulation, which I imagine most advocates, including myself, are a bit skeptical of? Well, one thing I would I'd, I'd point out is I, I was struck by one thing that uh, Serge uh, Eggleman, who you, who you referred to, who's research director of the Usable Security and Privacy Group at something called the International Computer Science Institute, he actually used this word, which kind of stood out to me, this idea that social media platforms are, quote unquote, grooming children uh, towards certain behavior um, that he he regards as perilous. Um, he mentioned, you know, ads that that they're seeing perhaps that promote uh, weight loss, unrealistic beauty, body standards, things of that nature. Um, so so you know, drinking, vaping, all, all sorts of things that are apparently evading the the filter. It's not all about ads. I think lawmakers get sort of confused that you know, there's been a lot of discussion right now about Instagram kids, and and Facebook has already said that Instagram kids won't have ads in it. That's sort of missing the, the forest for the trees. You know, you're describing body image issues, all sorts of just sort of unhealthy cyberbullying behaviors on social media. Well, a lot of that stuff is targeting teenagers. And a lot of that stuff is going on right now. And that isn't really implicated or necessarily solved by COPPA, which is a children's privacy law that's geared toward kids under the age of 13. So I, I, I'm, I'm sort of, you know, there, I think there are just sort of gaps in protection that exist. And also, like, we need to be clear what we're trying to solve for. I also want to sort of push back on the idea. Like, I don't, I really dislike the use of grooming or other sorts of behaviors. Like, that's that's the language of sexual predation. If social media networks, content creation networks, not having rigorous standards for their ads is not grooming. Like, it isn't good. We shouldn't be defending that. And these platforms need to have more responsibility for the content that generates the money, i.e. ads, and what they're showing, whether they're predatory, discriminatory, whether they're being shown to children and they shouldn't be. That's all very important. But I think what makes it so difficult to sometimes engage on kids' issues is it gets to sensational really fast. And that's just something I dislike because you'll notice when it gets that sensational, and we frame it around kids or teenagers or more specifically teenage girls, oftentimes the solution then becomes, how do we keep them off the internet? And that is something as a former teenage girl, I am vehemently against. And we do see some of the language um, of concern about female behavior definitely having a different tinge than, than the concern more broadly. And I don't know if Serge meant to use that term in a, a, a way to evoke that double entendre or not, uh, but it nevertheless did. So you're right to point it out. Uh, I noted that Angela Campbell at Georgetown Law, who was one of the, the folks, uh, pointed out that, you know, in 21 years, the FTC's only moved to prosecute violations of COPPA only 34 times. Um, is that a, just sort of another piece of evidence that not much is being done on this front or that COPPA is not, not the right framework or the right FTC is not the right thing to address this? I will say the FTC has a lot of laws they have to enforce to just be at least sympathetic to part of it. And another part is the FTC has an incentive to take cases 
that are quick to settle. They're trying to minimize costs. They're trying to get precedents out there that show that they're getting wins and getting money. And I think that's where we've seen problems with this actual knowledge standard becoming you have to be 100% certain you found a kid and this is the kid. You could see a different FTC over the, the years, like if we had a different history, being much more aggressive about actual knowledge and having something that's a little bit more malleable and having something that's a little bit more intuitive or at least encapsulates some of the behavior that gets uh, waved away, like when companies sort everyone into under 15. And they're like, well, we don't know. And it's it, you could imagine a regulator who took a much um, a, a more aggressive approach. I agree 100% with that. I mean, you know, the FTC has... So, you know, we need to give the FTC some credit. Um, I think a lot of advocates want them to do more enforcement. I would like them to do more enforcement, but they, they are resource constrained. They have taken some really bold cases. Certainly, like, you know, if you look at the big YouTube settlement where, you know, functionally like YouTube is it's a general audience service and they were saying they did not have actual knowledge of kids, but at the same time, they're telling advertisers that they can reach X numbers of children and they had you know, functional knowledge that there are plenty of younger users using their service. I think the FTC sort of reached there to to expand COPPA, but they're constrained by what the law actually does. They're constrained by an ability to, at the end of the day, they're trying to provide, you know, redress to consumers um, and they're limited. I, you know, I also think we should acknowledge that COPPA can be enforced by state AGs. That's something that I spend a lot of my time working on and AGs have brought cases too. But you know, I think Sarah's 100% correct that the goal is to, at the end of the day, like we want to bring cases that we can close. And there are elements of COPPA that are just tremendously under-enforced. And uh, I think the best example of that is if you read COPPA, it has data minimization provisions. Um, you know, these are the, this is the type of thing that I think privacy advocates are really strongly pushing for in a general privacy law. COPPA compliance should require apps to not collect more children's data than is necessary to provide an app or service. That is not the part of COPPA that's enforced. Instead, what we end up seeing is lots and lots of enforcement about whether there was verifiable parental consent, whether, um, you know, again, whether people had certain knowledge of what their users were, and then what did a privacy policy say? So like the, the larger I think policy questions posed by a, a children's privacy law like COPPA, th- those are the things that I think are haven't been enforced and litigated and would, if we're being honest, be very actually challenging to litigate. On Friday, you had Senators Markey and, and Cassidy putting forward this uh, Children and Teens Online Privacy Protection Act, which I guess would do some of the updating that you're talking about to COPPA. Uh, what do we make of it? Speaking as a representative of common sense, you know, we have, we have been a big proponent of Senator Markey's work in this space and have supported this law to the extent we see lots and lots of lawmakers on both sides of the aisle say they want to do something to expand protection, privacy protections for kids and teens. Here's a bill that's out there and we'd like to see people's reaction to it. I'm hesitant to say this professionally, but I, I do think it's worth, uh, I'm a little bit of a, of a cynic personally. The reality is, and uh, I, I would punt to Sarah because you know she does a lot of work on the larger privacy conversation. I mean, the reality is, while there is bipartisan interest, and it seems in some respects like the children's privacy component is where there's most consensus. The problem is, I think the larger privacy debate is being fueled by concerns about the alleged patchwork of state laws like the CCPA and, and Virginia, and then this sort of 
industry interest in global interoperability with GDPR and the range of you know, data protection frameworks we're seeing in Brazil and China and Japan. As a practical matter, I, I think I think a COPPA update would get a lot of votes if it ever reached the floor of, of the House or Senate, but that isn't where I think the, the relevant committees are at this point. Sarah, are you more of an optimist? I don't know I'm more of an optimist. I am going to be a bit of a wet blanket about kids' privacy. One thing that I, I sort of dislike about the kids' privacy discussion is when you start with kids' privacy, you're inherently building a privacy law and then adding kids stuff on top of it. And there is a lot of stuff in COPPA, as Joe said, that would be very at home in a good federal privacy law. So to the extent that COPPA 2.0 does that, that's really great. It's just when I want to talk about kids and what kids need, especially for privacy, I want to be having that conversation on top of like knowing that no one else, no one's data is getting exploited that there is data minimization just across the entire ecosystem. Um, I think that does two things. One, it makes it less fraught to comply with that type of law if you uh, to comply with a kid's law if everyone has to operate under the same sort of baseline privacy standards. And then two, we can really start deciding in the kid's space what exactly we're trying to accomplish, whether it's more parental control, better security, different sort of privacy questions, like maybe an eraser button, because while we don't like the right to be forgotten in the US, we're a little bit more um, warm to the idea for that for under 18s. And the last thing I just want to flag about COPPA and its and its update, it still relies on parental consent. And as a privacy advocate who's uh, gotten a uh, who's very skeptical of how useful consent is as um, a regulatory measure or as a, a measure that actually protects people's privacy. I don't know why we'd put it in a kid's law when most advocates at least don't really want it in a federal like comprehensive standard anyway. Again, it's the same problems. Nobody has time to read the policies. You're not really going to know what you're consenting to. It's really hard to understand how privacy works across apps and third parties and servicers. Like, let's just have a better baseline. And that's just something that I see again in this COPPA 2.0. It is still, it still does function under like a model of consent. Can I, can I gently push back on that? And I, I don't necessarily disagree, except I think it is important to acknowledge and th- this is certainly something I- I've heard that's alarming from from our, our friends in industry where they say we should not expand COPPA because we should not be treating teenagers the same as kids. The proposals currently before Congress I- in the, the Markey Cassidy bill, I mean, it would require consent by teenagers. Um, I-, I do take Sarah's point that, you know, that doesn't solve the larger problem that we have with consent. Um, I, you know, I... When we talk about consent in privacy law, we are not talking about informed consent, you know, akin to, say, when you donate a kidney or something. Really, I think consent is a proxy for how much friction and challenge we want to put into how companies can collect and gather data. I don't, I don't know if people want to be honest about that, but I do think, you know, it's, it's probably not accurate to really be talking about consent in any of these privacy laws because it, it doesn't work. Another thing I, I guess I would I think it's important, particularly tech policy press readers to be aware of. I think this entire debate just again shows how far behind the United States is on on all sorts of tech regulation. The United Kingdom is about to go into force. They have an age-appropriate design code that goes into force in September. 
a lot of the issues that I think came up at this hearing also are echoed in the, you know, the, the online safety bill proposed by the United Kingdom. I know that, you know, there's a lot of controversy about those proposals. But if you just look top to bottom at the sort of regulatory proposals that are being proposed in Europe, they're just they're night and day. They're 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 on to the next issue while we are still arguing about various opt-ins, opt-outs of privacy rules in the United States. And I, that, I find that trem- as an as a privacy advocate to be tremendously frustrating. I wish we were at the point where we could start talking about design decisions. I actually think that's a really fruitful area of regulation, I think you could make really meaningful differences on how these platforms perform. If we're talking about like design and how design encourages or discourages certain behavior and what it leads to, especially if we're taking that civil rights lens that we've had from like the Facebook audit and Airbnb audit and other learnings. Like I think there's like a really broad horizon of interesting regulation and safety precautions we can be putting or, or or just like different ways of thinking about tech policy and tech regulation. And we're still just stuck in, did we get a parent's consent or did we get their consent? Is it opt-in or opt-out? Like what ads were shown? And it's just like, we can do so much more than that. We could be so much more creative than that. Uh, on the safety question, maybe I'll just uh, switch gears a little bit, kind of going back to one of the earlier hearings uh, that you referred to earlier in this spate of hearings that have talked about children's issues, that uh, March 25th hearing with Mark Zuckerberg and uh, Sundar uh, Pichai and uh, Jack Dorsey. There were a number of Republicans and a couple of Democrats as well that brought up uh, real safety concerns, concerns around the uh, role of social media in, in causing depression among uh, children and teens. There was a report on NPR today that kind of looked into that um, and suggested that at, you know, on, on some level, there's a bit of a disconnect between what the platforms are saying and what researchers are saying. Um, what, what do you make of this? We don't know what we don't know. I think everyone should take with a grain of salt anything that the, the largest tech companies say and their commitment to making a healthier and safe environment. I mean, the, the reality is I, I think we could all question that perhaps they don't put their money where their mouth is. As a matter of policy, so Common Sense has worked with a number of, of stakeholders in industry and outside of industry to push. It's the Children's and Media Research Act, CAMERA. There are sponsors in the House and the Senate. And this is a proposal that would frankly like give money to NIH to conduct some of this independent research into how social media impacts young people. Because the reality is a lot of this research is happening behind closed doors within the largest tech companies. And they aren't exactly willing to share it, particularly if it gives them a potential black eye. There are solutions to this. And to sort of prop up my advocacy chest, you know, if lawmakers are seriously concerned about this, there are proposals that are out there that are widely agreed upon that would fund useful research that would actually give us answers to this situation that we don't, so that we don't frankly have to rely on begging and pleading Facebook to give us scraps of what they're doing internally. Absolutely everything that Joe said. We have no idea what's happening in these platforms because it's so hard to do independent research. And I think you're you're absolutely right. The only way to get this research done is by government mandate. Something that stuck out with me while I was watching Social Dilemma, Tristan Harris very like famously was like, nobody panicked about the bicycle when it was introduced. And then a whole bunch of scholars that study history pointed out the panic around bicycles. And they were centered around young single women going who knows where on bicycles. 
The reason I bring up the bicycle story is we have all of this research about tech panics being linked to greater independence for young women. I want the research that tells us if there are social media, if social media or even mechanisms within social media have a higher propensity to cause depression or anxiety. Like that is absolutely important. That'll inform design decisions and that'll inform the types of work we're trying to do. What I do not want to see is something which is the research we've sort of been seeing, or at least the summaries of research, which is like Facebook causes teen suicide. One, that's not helpful. And two, I I just, I'm not a public health expert, but I'm not sure how you can get quite from A to B in that instance. So that's just one thing that I want to keep at the front of my mind. And the other is at these hearings and at this one and at others, we very rarely hear from teenagers or teenage rights groups. And I think LGBT groups would be so important to be hearing from because oftentimes these are the teens where parents or government's interests are not necessarily aligned with their own. And so regulation that makes it harder for them to communicate, makes it harder for them to find community is troubling for me. So again, this is all things that have not happened yet. I don't think we're there yet, but I, I am wary of it. I am sensitive to it. And maybe it's because I got to be a teen girl on the internet with all the good and bad that that entails. You know, one of the, the comparisons that the uh, NPR piece made to Facebook's behavior was, uh, you know, perhaps the easy comparison is to the tobacco industry. Um, and maybe that takes it a little too far, Sarah, you think? Uh, do you think you're seeing that same kind of muddying of the waters? Either I of mean, you? there was a researcher in there in that article who said, I think that goes too far. I mean, if that comparison is apt, and again, I, there are probably mechanisms on social media that are more problematic than others. And again, I would love to see research on that. Like there is a lot of consternation about the like button and like different commenting mechanisms. And it's like visual ways of communicating are more harmful than text-based. That is all research I would really love to see because I think there is really important disambiguation there. The other thing I'd like to point out, most of the social media research focuses on like Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, but that's not the only place kids interact. There's also Snap. There is like AO3, Tumblr, Reddit. There, there are tons of places like teenagers use what we would consider like social or connective applications. So I would also want to see like, are there good things about them or are there better applications or better ways of communicating and like growing your community than others? Complete agreement. I think the only platform Sarah didn't mention was was YouTube. I think you've done a lot of, Justin, a lot of work in highlighting how YouTube often is underappreciated in its impact here. I, I would echo again. Yeah, we, we spend a lot of energy and time focusing on Facebook when I think the reality is kids and teens aren't on Facebook. You know, personally, I'm very interested in some of these up and coming social VR uh, applications, you know, the rec rooms of the world. Roblox is a fascinating like place for younger people to congregate. And, oh, you know, gosh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and we don't we don't see that really appreciated, uh, particularly as we get into like conversation about teens. You know, and I guess a, as a final conclusion, look, I, I don't I don't want to give a free pass to the tech companies. Um, I have as many I have as many problems with Facebook as the next person. Um, but I, I think we're letting ourselves off the hook to suggest that like 
that social media companies are the cause of everything that's going wrong right now. The reality is we've got some systemic societal issues. I'm a tech policy person, but you know, working at Common Sense over the past few years, I've had a, a really like growing appreciation for the role and frankly, like the neglect that we have done for things like civics education, digital citizenship, media literacy. I work on these types of issues like civics issues. And I think we should acknowledge K through 12 high school social studies courses uh, don't give students an honest understanding of our society and our country. And, and that's a real problem. And efforts to improve that are getting bogged down in the same like hyper polarized situation we're seeing across the board where we can't even really agree what the truth is. And so I, if we have a situation where parents don't really agree on a shared societal truth, policymakers aren't willing to sort of force the issue um, in terms of school curriculum. What, what do we expect of, of our young people at this point? You know, they're, they're trying to make themselves, you know, trying to make their way through society and social media offers, you know, a wealth of options to connect with people and learn new information and has opened a Pandora's box of problems. But we're not operating from a, I, I guess, like a, a shared foundation of, of what is true and frankly, how to be respectful and thoughtful of, you know, your peers that may disagree. That might be a little bit of a cliched ending. I think it's really easy for lawmakers on a bipartisan issue to blame Facebook and not, frankly, you know, take a cold hearted look at themselves in the mirror. As I worked through an entire pandemic, there are tons of issues that I'm aware of that I don't touch on professionally, whether it's abortion access, climate change, like <laughs> policing uh, in the policing of black men. Like these are all really salient social points for me. And I can't imagine what it would have been like as a teenager to be confronted with all of this, especially with the education that I had gotten. And I was getting again, I don't want to let social media off the hook. I think there are tons of things we can do to improve it for kids. But I do think there is a much better awareness among Gen Z of current societal issues. And I think, and maybe this is because I'm on Twitter too much and I will own that. And there's a, there's a bit of a despair that maybe we won't fix these big problems. Uh, we are all in tech policy. And I think Twitter is a perfect medium for folks that are based in DC working on policy. And I, I, a, a thousand percent agree with that. I love Twitter as much as the next person, but I don't think it's reflective of reality. Yeah. And I just, I wonder what it would be like to be experiencing the world or at least a lot of the world through the lens of social media and all the different ways it bends your perception and how that changes your view and your interaction with the world. But I, I'm just thinking of myself at 16 and I, I don't know, I, it might've been overwhelming and almost despairing. That's unsatisfying. I have no answer to that question at all, but it is it is something I do think about. Well, that seems like a it's a you know a, a complicated place to end, but uh, probably actually ends it right where it needs to be, which is that you know we it's our job to to think through some of these complexities, I guess, as adults, and and hope to get to something something better. Um, so, Sarah and Joe, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. That's it for this week's show. I hope you will send us your feedback. You can write to me at justin at techpolicy.press or find us on Twitter at techpolicypress. Thanks to my co-founder, Brian Jones. Thanks to our guests 
and thank you for listening. Tech Policy Press.